What notions are aroused in your mind when you hear the term revival? Are most of you here acquainted with this term? Some of you, I would suspect, hear this term mentioned and you immediately think of a series of evangelistic meetings held at a church. We always host our annual revival on the Monday, Tuesday, and Friday of the third week in March. Others of you may have images of bizarre experiences occurring in some backwater location underneath a giant tent led by an Elmer Gantry kind of charlatan. But all of this is quite unfortunate, my dear friends. The term itself, to revive, appears about 30 times in the Bible, occasionally with a physical reference. It speaks of someone who has died or is very near death, but who by the power of God is brought back to life. He has been revived. It is a physical emphasis that is in view. Most often, however, the term to revive conveys a distinct and specific spiritual emphasis. That a person who has grown spiritually indifferent and cold is suddenly aroused out of a state of complacency and filled with renewed spiritual fervor. It's the very experience for which David himself repeatedly prays throughout the Psalms. Revive me according to your word. Revive me through your righteousness. Revive me according to your steadfast love. It is a prayer for renewed spiritual vitality on a personal level. No doubt you've prayed this kind of prayer on many occasions, as I have. Perhaps you need to begin praying this kind of prayer today. It is Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones who says it like this, I am profoundly convinced that the greatest need in the world today is revival in the church of God. Yet, alas, the whole idea of revival seems to have become strange to so many good Christian people. There are some who even seem to resent the idea and actually speak and write against it. Such an attitude is due both to a serious misunderstanding of the Scriptures and to a woeful ignorance of the history of the church. Anything, therefore, that can instruct God's people in this matter is very welcome. Of course, what Dr. Lloyd-Jones is advocating is revival on a corporate level. The revival of a congregation. The revival of a university campus. The revival of a city or even a large segment of an entire country when the sovereign spirit of God is pleased to breathe out fresh life on those who for a long time have been slumbering in spiritual indifference and beginning to display the early signs of rigor mortis. It is the reanimation of spiritual fervor when God's people come to once again delight in him with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. It is David's prayer in Psalm 85, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? You say, well, Art, this revival business, it, it, it sounds terrific. Let's schedule one on the church calendar. No, for the very same reason you can't schedule the new birth. Revival is not ours to produce. It is not a work that can be generated by the appropriate application of the proper steps as though all we need to do is faithfully follow the proper revival formula. Revival, 
the reinfusion of spiritual passion is the exclusive work of the Spirit of the living God. It is the Spirit who gives life, says Jesus Christ. The flesh is no help at all. So that properly speaking, my dear friends, revival is not ours to initiate. It is not ours to implement, only ours to identify. Which is why the question we will now seek to address over the next three weeks is not how can we effect a revival, but rather what are the characteristic marks of God-sent revival? Because this is now precisely what meets us in Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. To borrow the words of J.I. Packer, it is at this point in Nehemiah's story that God himself comes to take over. What are the characteristic marks of God-sent revival? We will now discover three of them over the next three Sundays. The first of which is inescapably obvious right here in chapter 8, and it is this, that the Word of God is restored to its place of preeminence. The Word of God is restored to its place of preeminence. And as this chapter unfolds, dear friends, it will display itself to you in three very clear ways. Verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. Now what is this occurring? Well, verse 2 tells us on the first day of the seventh month. On the first day of the seventh month, back in chapter 6, verse 15, we are told that the reconstruction of the Jerusalem wall is completed on the 25th day of Elul, which is the sixth month. All of which means only a handful of days have passed since the completion of the wall itself. But still, a much more significant work of rebuilding needs to occur. Walls don't make for a strong city. Fidelity to God is what makes for a strong city. So they say to Ezra the priest, we want you to come and we want you to meet with us. And when you do come, bring Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses. Notice, however, that they simultaneously acknowledge an authority that transcends Moses, that the Lord, that Yahweh had commanded Israel. This is a human book. Never forget that. The Bible is exceedingly human. It's the book of Moses. At the very same time, the Bible is a divine book. It is God's very breath. This is the word of God. So, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The word attentive there means to give ear, to be responsive to. It speaks of a readiness to hear, an eagerness to understand, a predetermined commitment to obey. Several years ago, Lori and I were sitting in a Sunday evening service listening to one of our favorite preachers. 
We had waited for so long for him to come, and we were intent on every word that was coming out of his mouth, when all of a sudden we found ourselves distracted by an annoying but familiar sound. Someone clipping their fingernails. I looked around, and there he was. I recognized him. He was a missionary. His ears worked perfectly. But even though the word of the living God was being declared from a man unusually gifted by God, the blinds of his affections were drawn. But my dear friends, not in seasons of great revival. In fact, this is a pastoral apprentice's dream shot right here. For how long are these people attentive? From early morning until midday. Somewhere between five and seven hours. Amazing. You say, now wait just a minute. How did this happen? This shift from 20-minute seeker-sensitive pep talks to a five-hour exposition of the Pentateuch? Let me suggest to you this morning that this is the fruit of 14 years of faithful ministry, not marked by God-sent revival. You see, dear friends, for 14 years prior to Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem, Ezra the priest is there, teaching the word of God, explaining the word of God, preaching the word of God, illustrating and applying the word of God. And for 14 years, there is no massive revival. There is no great outpouring of the spirit of God. Rather, it is the slow, plodding, painstaking work of preaching and teaching during a season of complacency, just like that of most faithful local church pastors today. Bit by bit, growth occurs, at times almost imperceptibly. When Nehemiah finally does show up on the scene, the people are suddenly ready to build for the glory of God? How did this happen? In large part, you see, because of the unspectacular but faithful ministry of Ezra. And can you now imagine the joy that must be surging through his veins because suddenly, Almost out of nowhere, there are thousands of people gathered to hear the word of God. In fact, did you notice what it said in verse 1? And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. They told him. This time, you see, it isn't Ezra running around the neighborhood saying, would anybody like me to come over for a Bible study? Would anybody like to get together and talk a bit about the scriptures? He's been doing that very thing for 14 years. Here now they call him. Something's changed. In fact, verse 4, notice, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. This isn't thrown together at the last minute. Hey, Ezra, since we're all standing around doing nothing, why don't you read us something from the good book? No, no, no. We are calling a meeting. We are calling a meeting for the express purpose of allowing people to hear the word of God read. And since we're expecting a big crowd, we've got to construct a platform that ensures maximum exposure. The phrase actually here reads, a tower of wood. It's not about putting on a performance, dear friends. It's not about building a sanctuary that resembles a recording studio. It is about creating a context in which the scriptures will be heard most effectively. Their eagerness is as obvious as their attentiveness. Moreover, did you catch the pervasiveness of this? How does verse 1 begin? And all the people. 
It's not just a single individual or a small group of spiritually minded folk. In fact, more than 10 times in this chapter, we read the phrase, all the people, all the people. They're the stars of Nehemiah chapter 8, all the people. In fact, how does verse 2 more specifically describe it? Both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. Amazing. No children's church. How's this group going to ever grow? What had been accomplished in the prior 14 years would now be far outdone in a matter of about five hours. What accounts for the difference? God sent revival. The word of God is restored to its place of preeminence and it displays itself firstly now in an intensified receptivity. An intensified receptivity. My friends, on more than one occasion, I must confess, I've seen people clip their fingernails during the preaching of the Word of God. In fact, I know you won't believe this, but it is, but it is true. A few years ago, I was telling that very story I told you just a few moments ago, and as I'm telling the story, guess what I heard? And it wasn't in my head, and I looked down, and in the front row, there was one of the elder's wives clipping her fingernails. I've watched men balance their checkbooks. Women paint their nails. Students play video games. And friends, I don't say this this morning to condemn. My own mind can wander as I sit under the ministry of the word of God. The point is, such a thing is proof sure enough that we are not living in a season of revival. Because during such seasons, you read about them in the Bible, you read about them throughout church history. During such seasons, people can't even get enough. Stillness prevails. The ever-present coughing ceases. Somehow people's bladders last longer. They don't grab for their keys, you see, as soon as the pastor says, in conclusion. In a very real sense, my dear friends, during seasons of revival, people can't even take notes because they are so profoundly arrested by the ministry of the word. And it's not as though the preacher suddenly got a whole lot better. It's that God himself has come down and the immediacy of his presence is sensibly felt. God is present. God has come. God is talking. And we must hear everything that he has to say. It's an intensified receptivity. And beside him, that is Ezra stood, Mattathiah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaiah on his right hand. And Pedaiah, Mishael, Milkaijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. What are these 13 men doing on the platform with Nehemiah, uh, with Ezra? Several years ago, <clears throat> I was preaching at a conference at the Master's College. And at the very outset of the sermon, the entire PA system suddenly blew up. There was nothing else to do. So in that gymnasium filled with 1,200 people, I preached a 45-minute sermon without amplification. I think they heard nearly every word. You'll have to ask Missy. She was a student there when this happened. When I was finished, however, I was physically shattered. I could feel the perspiration underneath my jacket coat. Many scholars estimate the size of this crowd here to be between 30 and 50,000 people. 
Have you ever tried to read aloud to a group that large? Without amplification? From morning until midday. 50 chapters of Genesis. 40 chapters of Exodus. 27 chapters of Leviticus. 36 chapters of Numbers. 34 chapters of Deuteronomy. My suspicion is, though Ezra was in charge, all 14 of them took turns reading the scriptures. Watch it begin, verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. Oh my goodness, we've got liturgy going on here. It was an outward expression of their immense reverence for the word of God because, my dear friends, it's just this simple. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. Do you understand this? Our apprentices will tell you this is why I am so persistent about their reading the scriptures well. We are hearing the voice of God. And you must understand that short of the incarnation itself, it is the most immediate way God presences himself with us. It doesn't get any more intimate than that, friends. In many gospel churches in Scotland, the worship service begins when a church official, the beadle, enters the place of worship carrying a Bible. He walks to the front, ascends the platform, steps up to the pulpit, lays the Bible on it. He then leaves the pulpit, gathers the preacher, escorts him to the pulpit, at which point the preacher then reads from the Scriptures. What is so interesting about this is that from the very moment the beetle enters the auditorium with the Bible in his hand, the entire congregation stands to its feet and remains standing until the scriptures are read and the pastor says, this is the word of the Lord, to which the congregation appropriately replies, thanks be to God. You say, well, it sounds like people are worshiping the Bible. Not hardly. Look at verse 6. And Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I can't help but ask you at this point, dear friends, is this the kind of receptivity you bring to the word of God when we gather to hear it? Are you prepared when you come to this place? Have you prayed that you would hear God's voice in the preaching of the word? Years ago I heard G.I. Packer say, the battle for worship on the Lord's Day is won or lost on the prior Saturday night. I have never known an exception to that. Have you come to this place having turned off your cell phone? Having used the restroom? Does this here resemble you? The eagerness, the attentiveness, the reverence, the anticipation, the expectancy. Beloved, I want to tell you to your own encouragement, it is so easy 
to preach the Word of God at Trinity Church. If a person can't preach the Word of God at Trinity Church, then they really can't preach anywhere because so many of you do come to this place wanting the Word of God. But that having been said, friends, does this intensity of receptivity distinguish us? Does it distinguish you? Dads, are you getting your family ready the night before? Showing your children so much that you want the word of God that we are going to pray and ask the spirit of God to come and talk to us tomorrow. Here the word of God is restored to its place of preeminence, a characteristic mark of God's sent revival, and it displays itself in an intensified receptivity. But also, secondly now, in an experiential potency. An experiential potency. Were we to stop at this particular point, you might conclude that these men merely read from the law of God for five hours. But notice now, 13 additional men are named. Verse 7. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelaiah. You say, well, who are these guys? The Levites. Why are they mentioned here? Because along with Ezra, their captain, they function as something of a teaching team. They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, friends, we don't have all the details spelled out as we might like, but what's going on is something like this. Ezra and the other men on the platform would read a section from the law. And then they would stop. At which point the Levites, strategically placed at various locations throughout the crowd, would then translate from Hebrew, the language in which the law was originally written, into Aramaic, which was now the common language of the people. From there they would explain the meaning of what they just translated and then in turn tease out its various applications. It's exactly what a preacher must always do on the Lord's Day. The logistics are different, I grant you. But my dear friends, the components are exactly the same. You read the text, you explain the text, you apply the text. That's all we do. That's all preaching is. You read the text, you explain the text, you apply the text. I frequently say to our apprentices, you are a butler, you are not a chef. Which means you don't make the meal, you just get it to the table without messing it up. We don't invent the talk. Preaching is not about showing off one's creativity. We are to re-talk God's talk. This is the spirit sword. This is the instrument he uses. The power for life change resides here. Which is what we now see. Verse 9 in Nehemiah who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why did they say this? For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. As a result of the exposition of the scripture, there is brought before the people a vivid realization of God's holiness and majesty and grace and their own corresponding perversity and guilt. To such an extent, my dear friends, that not only do they recognize the disparity, they now suddenly feel it experientially, and they are devastated by it. You've probably known something very much like this in your own experience, in a more individualized way. 
when you've sat under the ministry of the preaching of the word, and if you didn't know better, you would swear the preacher had been peering into your innermost thoughts. That at times you almost felt violated. Let me tell you something, my friends. That has nothing to do with the abilities of a preacher. No preacher is that good. It's what happens when God shows up in an extraordinary way. When God surprisingly takes over. It's happening here to the entire congregation. The word of God has come in experiential potency. And Nehemiah and Ezra, I think they're completely caught off guard by this. They don't expect it. Ezra's been doing this for 14 years, never seen anything quite like it. You say, well, why weren't they expecting it? When is this occurring? Verse 2. The first day of the seventh month. The first day of the seventh month. On Israel's religious calendar, God has a plan for the first day of the seventh month. Read Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29. God says, on that day, I want you to have a national holiday. I want you to have a great and joyous celebration, a feast inaugurated by the blast of a trumpet. In fact, let's call it that. Let's call it the Feast of Trumpets. Therefore, he says, this day is holy to the Lord. It is set apart, sanctified to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. You people think that eating together is the innovation of Trinity Church. We may have perfected it, but we didn't invent it. For this day is holy to the Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. He's not saying, Be silent. He's saying, Stop crying. And I love this. I absolutely, positively love this. I find it to be so refreshing and so profoundly human. Three times we read, this day is holy. This day is holy. This day is holy. Three times we read, do not grieve. Do not grieve. Do not grieve. Holiness and joy go together. God deliver us from that false piety, which seems to imply that holiness always means somberness. The real piety, serious about the seriousness about the gospel means you never smile, you never laugh, you're never happy, you can't enjoy life. Now, my dear friends, Nehemiah is not here dismissing the importance of contrition. There is a proper time for such a thing, as we will very clearly see next week in Nehemiah chapter 9, but not on this day, not on this feast day, a day in particular designed to remember God's saving work in the past and to anticipate God's ultimate victory in the future. That's what the feast days were all about. And you understand, it's exactly what the Lord's day is to be. Which is why the Puritans of old used to say that it was fine to fast on Monday through Saturday, but never, ever, ever to fast on Sunday. Why? Because everything about the Lord's day is to be joy-filled. 
Everything about the Lord's Day is to be marked by exuberance and happiness in delight. It is the day we intentionally remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the day we anticipate his return when the last trumpet will sound, Jesus will descend, and our union with him will be consummated in a feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now that is what sustains us. My dear friends, through the darkness of this world, through all of the hardships that are inflicted upon us by virtue of sin. And do not be grieved. Why? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The word actually means a fortress. The joy of the Lord is your fortress. When used literally, a fortress is a place into which people run to find security and protection. Here it's used metaphorically that the fortress into which God's people run for strength and security is the joy that comes from belonging to him and experiencing his salvation. When the realities of unemployment come down upon you, when the terror of a cancer diagnosis afflicts you, when the devastation of a wayward child haunts you in your dreams, it's the joy that comes from knowing God, belonging to him and and the salvation he has provided for you that's what sustains you in the dark night of the soul it's a fortress of joy that can carry you through when everything about your life is filled with despair it's the one thing that holds you together it's what you hear, beloved, in that lyric of Horatio Spafford as he reflects upon the tragic deaths of his four children. Though, sh- though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. In response to that telegram he received from his wife, saved alone, the devastated Spafford writes, it is well with my soul. There is a fortress of joy that can't be penetrated. Knowing him, being loved by him, knowing that by virtue of his saving mercy to me, it is well with my soul. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them because they had heard the word. It is a characteristic mark of God-sent revival. The word of God is restored to its place of preeminence as displayed in an intensified receptivity and an experiential potency. Lastly, most tellingly, in an enthusiastic obedience. In an enthusiastic obedience. Verse 13. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people 
with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Ezra, we know that it's very difficult to speak for five hours to a crowd of 30,000. So here we are, the leaders. Give us a crash course in the law of God so that we in turn can disseminate it to the people. And what did they discover in their very first day of Bible study? Verse 14, And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Scheduled on God's calendar for that same seventh month? Another eight-day feast, a feast of booths. The purpose, a reenactment of what? A reenactment of how God affected their salvation, delivering them from Egyptian bondage and providing for them through 40 years in the wilderness. Every year it was to be a part of their life together, eight days to do nothing but reenact that event. How easy it is, friends, for people to forget the gospel. How easy it is, my friends, for us to forget God's grace in salvation. God wants his people to be reminded of it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And how do these leaders respond when they discover this command from the word of God? Oh, you know what? It really isn't appropriate for our cultural context. They went out and proclaimed and published it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. This is God-sent revival. You see the immediacy of the response, the immediacy of the obedience. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Mun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. Verse 18. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. They obeyed. They obeyed immediately. They obeyed without qualification. They obeyed comprehensively. All of them. All of them. Did you see that? It's what happens during seasons of revival. Obedience is a delight, not a drudgery. Pleasing God becomes the source of your greatest joy. The commandments of God are not burdensome, First John says. It is an enthusiastic obedience. Notice there at the end of verse 17. And there was very great rejoicing. It's the fruit of renewed obedience. Is it what you need to experience afresh? The sheer delight and pleasure and joy in obeying God? Near the end of his life, our great forefather Martin Luther was asked to what do you attribute the widespread effects of the Reformation? His response was classic. While I slept and drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip and with Amsdorf, the word did it all. And here in Nehemiah 8, The word as well has done it all. 
Now, my dear friends, these are not the days of Nehemiah. These are not the days of Nehemiah in the sense that we are not in a season of revival. Ours is a time much more in keeping with the 14 faithful years of Ezra the priest. Now, you're not to be discouraged at this point, friends. It's just a declaration of what is. It doesn't mean that God is not at work. It doesn't mean that his word has no sway over us. It does not mean that his Holy Spirit is absent from our fellowship. It means that the measurements of success are much more modest and discreet. And yet... At the same time, the signs of his blessing are always tied to his word. And you are seeing it here at Trinity Church. You say, well, I mean, Trinity Church is growing, but, but, but how much growth is really owing to conversions? I've heard several of you say that. How much of the growth is really owing to conversions? Well, a small percentage, admittedly, for which we seek to sharpen our efforts in evangelism. But it's almost as though the tacit implication is it's not really a good thing that growth is occurring by way of other Christians coming here. And at that point, friends, I, I, don't, think I, could, I, I don't think I could contrast what you're saying with any greater enthusiasm or passion. Because let me ask you, you think carefully now, why is it people are coming here? Why is it people are coming here? Is it because we have the very best programs? Is it because our music is the edgiest in town? Is it because our youth group happens to be the flavor of the month? You say, I didn't even know we had a youth group. Bingo! (laughs) After our meeting Wednesday night, Mark Lauterbach and Lori and I were walking to the car and he said, man, it's it's amazing what God is doing. You guys have been going a year and a half. This is absolutely astounding. But you know the thing that seems so strange to me? I had no idea what he was going to say. I said, what? He said, you're not cool. (laughs) Now, I am cool in kind of an old school way, in a Frank Sinatra kind of cool. But, 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 we all know here, we all know, and it's no surprise to me, believe it or not, he's exactly right. You know the reason why churches are in trouble today? Because they think the key to church life is cool pastors. We're suffering from 20, 30 years of that very notion. So again, I ask you, why are Christians coming here? Why are Christians coming here? I'll tell you why. It's because there is a famine of hearing the word of God in Portland. Christians are coming here because they are dying of starvation elsewhere. It's not because they're being fed well elsewhere and we got better programs for them. It's because they are starving. It's the reason for two services. It's the reason for church planning. It is not because there is a shortage of churches. It's because despite a plethora of churches, there is a famine of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I admit it, my dear friends, without apology. I have told my own children, both of whom are away at university, go where you can hear the word of God. I don't care if the only instrument they have there is a harmonica. I don't care if everybody there is 80 and older. Go where you can hear the word of God. Because that's where God does his thing. Is the word of God important to you? More to the point, does it have the preeminent place? 
Why should it? I suppose I could say, well, because it was preeminent to Ezra and Nehemiah. But would you really find that compelling? The Word of God ought to be preeminent in your life for many reasons, two of which are the most important. One, because it was preeminent in the life of Jesus. We see him engaging with the doctors of the law when he's just 12 years old. When the temptations of the devil assault him, it is by means of the Word of God that Jesus responds. Throughout his ministry, he repeatedly says things like, The scriptures cannot be broken. Not one jot or tittle shall pass away. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. It ought to be preeminent in your life because it was preeminent in his. But secondly, and maybe even more emphatically, it ought to be preeminent in your life because all of it ultimately points to him. The Feast of Trumpets the Feast of Booths, the Exodus itself. In fact, dear friends, how does the New Testament begin? How does the Gospel of Matthew begin by showing us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything to which Israel pointed? Jesus is delivered out of Egypt, as was Israel. Jesus experiences a watery ordeal, baptized even as Israel was baptized into the Red Sea. He spends 40 days and nights in the wilderness, just as Israel had endured wilderness for 40 years. And just as Moses ascends Mount Sinai to then deliver God's law to his people, so too Jesus ascends the mountain where he delivers God's law to the people of his kingdom. But when he does, he says this, I did not come to abolish the old, I came to fill them full. In other words, to be the one to whom they all point. And this is why the word of God, beloved, should be of such great importance to you. Yes, because it was preeminent in the life of Jesus, but even more significantly because he is the one to whom all of it ultimately aims. This book is not an old, cold, sterile, irrelevant document. It is not an ancient, albeit inspired book of virtues. It is a book that from cover to cover reveals God's plan to save his people through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a book about the gospel. And you must love it. You must cherish it. You must read it and study it and devour it and memorize it and master it and be mastered by it. Because there is no God-sent revival apart from this book. It must always have the place of preeminence. Here at Trinity Church. And in your own life as well. We just sang it. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our Lord and our God, our King, our Savior.
We thank you so much for the authority of your word, for its clarity and its sufficiency. Oh, when people are trying to hear your voice in secret places, trying to read messages in the clouds, we hold in our hands your very voice to us, your very heart, your very mind. All that we ever ultimately need is right here. And, Father, for all of our failings, and there are many, for all of our weaknesses, and they are certainly obvious, may it always be that we prize the Word of God at this place, that it always occupies the place of ultimate authority, that it is the preeminent thing in the fellowship of Trinity Church. And while revival, as we've talked about it, ultimately is authored by you, that we cannot keep a formula so as to commence revival. We know that you bless your word. We know that you bless people who love your word. And Father, given all the things we're being told we ought to do as a church, all the novelties, all of the gimmicks, all of the things that we're told will certainly cause a church to grow and have influence and to become well-respected, we come back again to the authority of your word and pray that though we're not cool, your word would win the day. A word that from cover to cover points us to Jesus. So, Father, this morning we love you and acknowledge your greatness. We want to be this kind of people. An intensified receptivity. We want to know something of the word's experiential potency. And we ourselves long to be distinguished by an enthusiastic obedience. Thank you for this day, for the joy that marks it, for the pleasure and delight that we find in obeying you. Not because somehow it's the way we earn your favor. We find our delight in obeying you in response to the favor that you have already granted us in the gospel. Thank you for this dear congregation, Father. Affect your purposes in us, we pray. Amen.